Startup Stories DSM features conversations with entrepreneurs who share both their victories and failures on their path to success. Startup Stories is produced by the Greater Des Moines Partnership. More tips and resources are available at dsmpartnership.com slash business resources. I'm your host, Christina Moffitt, Director of Small Business Resources at the Partnership. Megan McKay, welcome to Startup Stories. In 2009, a recession's underway, and you decide to open a brewery in a small little town of Knoxville called Peachtree Brewery. How did this all come about? Well, we had bought a building the year before, and really just were trying to kind of shine up our hometown. We had the insurance agency across the street. Things were looking pretty blighted. Um, it wasn't a place where you could attract young workers or really a place that was exciting to live. And so we were trying to just basically, you know, clean up our neighborhood from the standpoint of how can we protect our insurance business and keep a, a community vibrant um, for the long term. And nobody rented the building after we bought it. And so finally, we just said, we need to start our own business. Nobody's going to have the creative idea to come in and do it. And so um, after some soul searching, we decided a brewery kind of hit all the marks. We could make a product in Knoxville and sell it outside of our community. Um, it was a great tourism base where we could draw more people in and it was just a really a good quality of life factor where we could meet gather you know have some beers bring in some art music and um, make it a place where people wanted to get together and meet meet new people in the community and from outside the community so we usually tell people not to go into an industry they know nothing about so tell us take us a little bit on the journey of how do you start a brewery when you're not really probably a brewmaster have experience in it yeah, so none of us had any brewing experience. Um, my husband at the time had brewed a little bit at home, but certainly not commercially. Um, the first thing we did was really just kind of leapfrog from the things that we knew in the insurance business, you know, go out and find good industry partners, um, go out and know, you know, figure out what you don't know, and then hire well to get that expertise that you needed. And then, you know, I think really the common thing with all businesses is um, relationships. It's about building those relationships so you can have good vendors, you can have good staff relationships, um, get the network in place so that you can go out and get the um, you know, city on board to get uh, your customers on board, those sorts of things. So while it seems like a big departure, in some ways I think all businesses are very much the same. It's There's a lot a, of the fundamentals. A product that you're delivering. Exactly. So businesses ask me a lot, how, how do I come up with a name? How do I know if I've hit upon a name? And Peace Tree. It's kind of a unique name. Tell yeah. us a little bit about how you decided on that name. So we actually filed our TTB notice under a different name, and it was a name my dad came up with, and it was White Breast Brewing Company, which okay. White Breast is a recreational area out by us at Lake Red Rock, and nobody ever thinks twice about it. Um, our brewmaster, Joe, came to us. He'd been on the job maybe five days, and he said, I don't think we can use that name. And I'm like, oh, how am I going to go tell my dad? Like, this was the name he was really excited about. We talked through it. He's like, nope, we're using it. And then a couple weeks later, Joe came back and he's like, outside vendors, people are like not giving good feedback on that name. And so through kind of, you know, one of our core values is authenticity and really uncovering where that came from for the White Breast name. And so through that history and research, kind of figuring out why White Breast was named White Breast, which was apparently after a bear that used to roam the area and the Native Americans um, named the area for that. 
I also came across this story of this giant sycamore tree, which was now in Lake Red Rock, but was near the old town of Red Rock, which is where my mom grew up and my grandparents had farms. Um, and actually very near where I grew up because we grew up out at the lake. And so this tree kind of kept coming up in these stories about being the peace tree or the treaty tree where the Native Americans would meet to trade. And then when the settlers came in, they would meet there because it was, you know, you could see it from far away. Um, And in like 1843, they drew actually the Red Rock Line where the settlers could only go so far west until two years later. And so that was how it became known as the Peace Tree or the Treaty Tree. So it just had a lot of good historical significance for my family. It was a great way to kind of teach people about our history and our culture. Um, You know, most of us, the lake came in in 1969, so nobody really thought about what was there before. Um, And it was a good way to kind of root that whole idea of different cultures coming together, people coming together and meeting, and then um, forming partnerships so they could go off and do do good things. I think I think it's a great story, and I think any any great brand has a good story on why they come to that name. And I also think you hit on something really important: is that you did have a name. And yeah. you put it out there, and I got really bad feedback. Yeah. And I think that's important because a lot of businesses pick a name, they never get feedback on it, and then all of a sudden it comes back that it has a negative connotation or people just are not really hitting the mark with this brand or relating to it. It probably saved you a lot of time and money to pull back from that because your brand or your name actually then goes into your branding. And right. so your branding has kind of a very fun, interesting feel to it. So talk to us a little bit about branding and how you landed sure. on your look. Then how does that translate into uh, the building that you have today? Yeah, I think, you know, from the very beginning when we were transitioning to the new name, we realized that we needed to get some outside help. Um, Scott was an, a graphic designer. He had some of that in his background. So he planned to do kind of our logo and labels. And when we changed the name, it was like, okay, we've got to figure this out fast. Yeah. And we both um, had seen work from John Sales, and we really, you know, again, kind of trusting that outside expert or somebody who has the expertise that we needed. Um, we really trusted him with the idea of coming up with some label designs and ideas and settled on using John from day one um, with the Peace Tree name. Actually, we had a couple, three other names that he kind of put some graphics together for us, and that one, with the name and the graphics that he put together, it really hit. Um but yeah, it was it was difficult to pull back from that and then, you know, realize how to go forward. But I think our idea was we wanted to come to the market very differently than other beer brands were at the time. Iowa beer didn't necessarily have a great reputation in 2009. Um, you know, there were some people who were doing some really good things, but they'd fumbled a little bit early on. Uh, we also just kind of wanted to show people that craft beer, you know, can be fun and different and exciting and, you know, maybe think about that as a, a beverage option. Um, and it was really important to us that, uh, you know, I say this a lot, that Joe is making art. Beer, craft beer is art. And it's Definitely. important that we celebrate that and that we have packaging and labels that really um, keep that whole idea of this very high quality, very artistic endeavor that we're undertaking. And so I think our artwork and our labels really do that. So It really does. We were, we were all very much on board with making that happen from day one. So the other thing that's unique about your beer is the bottle itself. So how did you decide on this unique bottle? Was it because it stands out, because it was something different? Does it taste different? Yeah, so the bottle itself, um, again, so Joe was a um, fine arts major at Iowa State. Scott had the graphic design background, so very artistic people. Aesthetics were really important, and they just wanted, again, something that kind of you know, stood out and showed that we were different. Um, the liquid in the bottle, obviously, is the most important. It's got to be the best it can be, but if 
people don't notice it, they're never going to try it. And so it was a way to get us to stand out. Um, Joe had seen some bottles, I think, from Full Sail Brewery out in Oregon that he was um, attracted to and thought they were really nice. And really that bottle choice then had to be made very early on because we had to put our bottling line choice around it and then all of our packaging and get custom dyes made for the six packs and everything else on down the road and so it was made very early on and it was um, really difficult actually to source somebody who could make that bottle still is difficult to source that sometimes um, because it's unique and anytime you're doing something that's unique it costs more and it's just harder to find Um, and so it may also be one of those worst decisions ever, but it's also, I think, one of our best decisions ever. So I kind of chalk that up to um, a little higher cost inputs, but I think it adds to our marketing um, and, and kind of how we put ourselves forward in the market. I would agree with that. I think it definitely even when you look around um, a bar or a party, you can always tell yeah. without even seeing the label that it's a peace tree bottle. So I, I yeah. definitely think it's worth it for you guys because it's, it's been a good decision, I think. It's yeah. probably hard on the back end, but... That's a good branding model when you can just know without, yeah. it's kind of like Starbucks green straw. Like everybody knows you're holding a Starbucks where they, they can see the label or not. And the same is true for your bottle. Yeah. I think it has served us really, really well. Um, and I, I'm, I wouldn't change it at this point. It's really a, a part of our identity. All right. Well, the it then has turned into um, several tasting rooms for you. So we talked about the building, and the building really led the decision to, you know, kind of drive to get your beer outside, and obviously the tasting room. But really, why both? It seems like that's a pretty big headache to take on learning yeah. how to mass produce this beer and run a tasting room. Yeah, and I would say um, originally when we first looked at it we really just thought we'd make a little bit of beer and we'd throw it out in this tasting room and it'd be this really casual place where I don't even know if we'd charge for it. People could just hang out and come and have a beer. (laughs) Not a good business model. (laughs) No. Um, But then it kind of kept morphing into, and then, you know, we started looking at really putting the numbers to it. And it's like, okay, if we're going to do this, we've got to like go a little bigger because there's no way a town like Knoxville, Iowa, which is known for sprint cars and bush light is going to be able to support a craft brewery and tap room. Right. So we've got to be able to get customers outside of Knoxville. And so it just made sense to have to do the whole production piece of it. Um, And basically, we took that also from our insurance agency model where we were um, selling insurance policies all over the United States to bicycle events. And um, we called it silent sports. Uh, So we had this really big book of business outside of our local area, but it helped kind of fund. So we had good infrastructure for our local clients as well. And so we kind of took that same idea with the beer business. Um, It's not a novel idea by any means, but it just was... We can't support it with just our hometown population, so let's make beer and send it out and then use that to redevelop our hometown with more jobs and be able to have better equipment and all of those things that follow on from that. The taproom experience, I think, is so important because people, especially in 2009, when you think about it, um, craft beer was still kind of a weird thing. People didn't really understand it or get it, and you have to get people in to come and experience that and give them the best possible experience they can have from good glassware to an explanation of the beer to maybe pairing it with something and just you know really educate them through the process so that then they would go out and buy it at the grocery store if they saw it. So really hand in hand. Very true. And as you touched on those tasting rooms being a very, very important part of craft breweries, um, which we've seen kind of pop up all over, but you actually have decided to expand those outside. So you are now in Grinnell. Yes. Which is another small town, Mm -hmm. but then you're in Des Moines, Iowa, which is a massive market. So how did you land on expanding two more tasting rooms and a big city and a small city? Yeah. The 
Des Moines project really stemmed out of this idea that Joe and I had had very, very early on, which was we wanted to make sour beers and we wanted to do things with different bacteria, um, different yeast strains that were really pretty dangerous to use in your production facility. So it was how can we have this other production facility or another brewery? And then the more we started thinking about that, it was like, well, it doesn't make sense to put it in Knoxville. There's not enough people there to support what we're doing anyway. Um, more and more breweries had popped up. We were starting to feel less and less a part of the Des Moines beer scene. And so it just started to make sense that we need to go to the population center if we're going to do this. And so we started shopping for a spot in Des Moines and uh, landed very happily over in the East Village. And so we've got our eight and a half barrel pilot system. We can do all kinds of crazy stuff. And then our production can really focus on being a good, efficient manufacturing facility and just getting out the volume that we need to get out. But that was really the impetus of it. It wasn't that I wanted to open a bunch of tap rooms. It was more from the creative, artistic side that, you know, Joe needs a space to create and do new things. Um, if he's just making Blonde Fatale every day all the time, artists get a little bored with that. Yeah. So that was where it came from. Um, I've also seen a big shift, I think, with consumers is they want to have more local beer. Now that you know, we've we've done a really good job of, of telling people about craft beer, and now people, it's not just, oh, this is from my state, or this is from my region, or my town, it's what's in my neighborhood. And I don't think we see that quite as much in Iowa yet, but it's certainly a trend. And so getting close to where your customers are is really important. Um, and, and Des Moines certainly was spurred by that. Grinnell was kind of accidental, but it was, um, you know, another great female entrepreneur who was wanting to redevelop downtown Grinnell and came and kind of got me, and our values really aligned well, and that's really where my heart is, is that small town, Iowa. Um, You know, there's a lot of great people that live there. It's a great quality of life, and so how can we come in and add to that as well as, you know, bring some things back into our business, um, which I think Grinnell really does. It's a, yeah. it's a great community. All the communities you're in are so incredibly different. So how do you decide kind of what you're going to focus on in each town? Because the demographics are very, very different in each town. So yeah. how do you know what you need for each? Um, you know, I think the basics are we start with kind of who we are as a company. And number one, it's always been about great beer. And so we try to make that the core focus and make sure that we're not too gimmicky around that or, you know, don't get too far off the path with that. But then kind of customize it from there for the experiences that people are looking for. And I think we still struggle a little bit in Des Moines trying to figure out exactly what that is or how we fit because it's kind of outside of our comfort zone. Um, Grinnell was a little easier. Um small town but much more art focused and and a little more metropolitan even sometimes than I think Des Moines can be from the standpoint of Grinnell College coming in you have a lot of different students and faculty um, that make it a little more of a melting pot than the rest of Iowa different Mm -hmm. tastes from all over yeah so we kind of you know start with the same idea but then customize it a little bit based on the space and the town and what they might be looking for for instance in Grinnell we have a spelling bee which goes amazingly well How fun. um that people really like didn't go over well at all in knoxville so really you know you I, I guess i can keep see that trying little things here and there very cool well you mentioned so grinnell des moines knoxville you've got your production facility how do you manage your time running this company when you're not it's not like you can jump in the car and be right down the road yeah so I think, you know, Grinnell came on really quick after Des Moines, and I, um, you know, probably overstepped myself a little bit on that. 
And so this year has really been around trying to kind of put a foundation back together and figure out how I can delegate things a little bit better um, and realizing that I had hit my limit of being able to actually give people what they needed as far as my time and energy and getting things done. Um, So I really try to make sure I'm out in each of the branches as much as I need to be and be accessible and prioritize, you know, removing obstacles for my staff or getting them the resources that they need. And then I also try to go and hide in my office as much as I need to to kind of get the work done from all the to-do lists that I get from being out and about. Um, I'm not going to say I manage it really well, but it's getting better for sure. Every year you learn a little more. Yeah. Well, every entrepreneur has had some tough situations kind of come up along the way, whether it's personal or professional. Do you want to share anything in particular, and how has that made you a stronger entrepreneur? Yeah, so, you know, in 2015, I had some really big choices to make about which direction to go. Um, I was still working full-time at the insurance agency and running the brewery kind of on the side. Um, my dad was retiring, and so it was kind of some choices to make about whether who was going to take the insurance company, who was going to take the brewery, and all of those things. Um, so a lot of soul-searching went into that, and it ended up that I sold out of my family's, you know, fourth generation business and my ex-husband took on the insurance agency, which I really thought that probably would have been reversed, but I think we both ended up really, really happy. Um, But I think, you know, the part that's super hard is you just always think, well, we were only successful because these two guys that were my partners, uh, they made it easy for me or, you know, just not a lot of confidence in those sorts of things. So I think the good thing was just kind of having to, you know, pull your pants up, put your boots on and say... It's just me now. This is all on my shoulders, and I've got a staff of, you know, 14 full-time employees, and at this point, 35 part-time employees, and they're depending on me, and you just have to kind of shake off the lack of confidence sometimes and get through it. So I think it's it's made me a little harder and a little more disciplined, um, which has been good, but it certainly was a challenging time. For sure. So I'm sure another challenge for you in taking over the brewery is that it's a very male-dominated industry. And I know when you've traveled and gone to your uh, conventions and even further out that it's very heavily male-dominated and the brewers and things like that. So tell us a little bit about being a female in the industry and then how is the industry moving the mark with females? Yeah. Um, You know, on a day-to-day basis, I really don't think anything about it. Um, I'm surrounded by really good people and it really just isn't an issue. Um, However, when you look at the statistics, you start to see that only about 2% of all breweries in the United States are owned solely by a woman. It goes up to about 17% if it's co-owned male and female, which usually tends to be husband and wife. Um, You have about the same numbers when you look at brewmasters, uh, where it's, you know, a single brewmaster, only about 2% of them are female, and about the same number for um, co-brewmasters at companies. And so, you know, from the technical standpoint, I think that's a little tough. I don't necessarily see it as a gender thing, but more just from a, you know, it's hard to go in and advise or say, hey, we should do this differently on the brewing side because I don't have the technical background. Um, Where I notice it the most is when we're out on sales meetings or if we're at a festival and it's, you know, somebody asks a question and if there's one of my guys with me, it might be somebody who's been there two weeks. Never fails. The eyes always go to the male that's with me (laughs) to answer the question about the beer or the company or anything else. Um, And so I think you just kind of politely, you know, don't make a big deal about it and answer the question. And and finally, they kind of figure out like, oh, she's the one in charge here. (laughs) And then you just move on. But, um, you know, I think the only other big struggles I've had is just making sure to set a really good tone around my expectations for how we treat each other. Um, And again, because it's I've always been pretty clear about 
you know, uh, being respectful and all of those things, we just don't have a lot of issues with it. And I probably attract men who are really comfortable with, you know, working for a woman and um, just not thinking that's an issue. Um, I think that probably is a little bit of self-selection. I think that um, just from an outside perspective, again, I'm not in the industry, but I see more and more women kind of getting into beer, whereas we didn't see that before. Do you feel like the craft beer movement has kind of changed that a little bit where you're seeing a spike in females becoming interested in it? I think there are more women being interested in beer and beer culture. Um, I see a lot of them gravitate more toward roles in marketing or tap rooms, um, sometimes sales, but in the actual brewing portion of it, I don't see as much happening. Um, which I think is a little bit frustrating. And again, it feels a little, I feel a little helpless on that side just yeah. because of the fact that I don't have that technical background. Um, there are things like Pink Boots Society. Uh, we do an annual women's brew day where we all get together just to kind of, you know, build our skills as um, people who are in the brewing industry and learn from each other. Um, there are, you know, a few other women's organizations that kind of get together and, and build those sorts of things. But I think we could probably do a better job of getting the guys to reach out and bring people in. Um, I am proud I've got one woman in my bottling line. She's been there six months, and I'm hoping that um, that will last for a long time and we can continue to expand that. But it's a challenge to find people who are attracted to that kind of work, too. It's hot. It's wet. It's dirty. It's not very glamorous. It's, it's um, not. <laughs> it's so not. we'll keep working on it. So you've been around for a while. You've been established, honestly, 2009 to, I mean, 2018. That's that's great, honestly, for any business. But the longer you're established, you know, people think you have it all together and you know mm-hmm. all the answers. But you're facing completely different challenges as kind of a mature business. Talk to us a little bit about anything that you've kind of encountered that's unexpected along yeah. your journey. You know, I think the biggest thing we struggle with, I mean, the biggest one probably is cash flow, just from the standpoint of every time you move up a step, you know, you grow your business 10%. 10% when you're tiny isn't a big deal. 10% when you're a lot bigger, it just takes a lot more capital, a lot more people and those sorts of things. And so staying ahead of that, I think, has been a constant struggle. Um, the thing I think I've struggled with more internally is just um, having an identity as a company that exists beyond just me and having like a structure and a format and a way that everybody else kind of knows what we're doing and we're on the same page and then being able to communicate that down. It feels very, we're doing a lot of work right now. We got the book Traction um, from Gino Wickman and I'm a full believer and evangelist for that after four months on it. Um, But I see the difference in, you know, that transformation from me trying to do everything to setting really clear goals and objectives and actually having an accountability chart, which feels very corporate and ridiculous for a company my size. But it was truly the stuff that was missing. And it was, you know, that ability for me to communicate clearly what we needed to do and where we needed to go. In my mind, it was just like hire really good people. And then tell them to go out and do their best and, like, figure it out, see what happens. And if we like the idea, great, we'll do it. Um, And I think what I realized was that most people aren't comfortable with that. They're not as entrepreneurial um, in nature. And they don't see that as freedom or good. They actually – it just freaks them out, and they want to run away. And so putting that structure in place, I think, has been a hard challenge for me. Um, but I think we're also seeing great rewards from it. So we just got to keep plugging through it. But it, it feels a little um, a little too neat and tidy sometimes, especially in the brewing industry where it's a lot of just kind of hanging out and hoping you 
make good beer. Yeah, but I think that's great that you have kind of something that you're looking forward to. And honestly, that's it happens to a lot of entrepreneurs. It's like now I've got all these balls in the air and I don't know how to prioritize them. Yeah. And I don't even know how to communicate to my team how we're moving forward or prioritize them. So I think that's great that you're following something. And Traction's a wonderful book. If anybody's interested in uh, picking up a copy of that, it really has helped a lot of businesses. Um, you mentioned the book Traction, but I know you also have some guidance and, and mentors that kind of help you when you run into um, issues. Who, who do you really rely on? Yeah, I probably don't do as well at this as I should, honestly. I tend to be a do-it-yourself kind of person, um, and so I always kind of cringe when I get this question. But, you know, my partner now, Brian, um, you know, he's a financial advisor, and I trust him, and we have a couple of other businesses on the side as well, and so we spar back and forth quite a bit. Um, I would say, you know, I've been able to hire some people that have a little more business experience internally, my marketing director, Mike, and my salesman, Nick. Um, you know, so we, they push me a lot and challenge me quite a bit. Um, and then of course, you know, I've gone out and tried to get some good accounting advice. Um, I have a really good attorney firm that I feel really comfortable talking through, you know, whether it's trademark issues or HR issues, those sorts of things. Um, so probably more of a formal network of, you know, people that I've hired. Um, but I think that's a true challenge for entrepreneurs is I know it's important and I probably should do a better job with it. But holy cow, where do I fit that in between <laughs> managing a company, having a kid, trying to have a relationship, um, and, uh, you know, friends don't even hardly fit in there. And so then having this, like, mentorship group is really, I think, something that we all struggle with. I think even if they're um, paid mentorships or just even other entrepreneurs that you can talk to, I mean, I, even for myself, you know, I, I feel like a lot of times I'll have passing conversations with people, and even if it's yeah. one piece of advice that I can drop that even helps them get through the day, mm-hmm. hopefully it's something good. Yeah. And I know that you do the same for a lot of entrepreneurs. You give your yeah. time a lot to them. And I think that's a good point. I think it is, it's probably just a lot of informal things here and there rather than a true mentorship program. So there's probably more out there than I think, but. Hopefully. Yeah, it's so, good. So the beer industry, you kind of mentioned, like, sours are a trend. What else do you see kind of coming down the pipeline as a trend? And what is next for Peachtree? Yeah, so we, um, you know, we're continuing to kind of roll out our sour program, not because it's trendy, but it's because something we talked about eight years ago. And really, from a stylistic perspective, it's what Joe's really into. I think, um, you know, we're going to continue to see some growth in the number of breweries. I think you'll continue to see the growth, especially in the very small breweries that are maybe just nano neighborhood, taproom only. Um, I think we're going to continue to see some contraction in uh, the number of breweries who are out doing packaging. Um, the ones who are struggling are really those big regionals. Uh, okay. You know, you walk into any high vee and it's mind-blowing the number of beers on the shelf. I don't know how many more distributors can handle or the retailers can handle. So I think we'll see a little contraction there, but overall, I don't think we'll go backwards near as far as we were eight or nine years ago. I think people have gotten a taste for the creativity and the flavors. Um, they've seen a whole different side of beer that they hadn't seen before. Um, as far as you know, trends with the beers themselves, we keep hearing a lot about people kind of pushing back toward that sessionable beer, lagers, um, pilsners, things that are a little lighter, IPAs that you can drink three or four of, or you can drink while you're having an activity. Um, I hope we go away from some of the more, you know, off-the-wall gimmicky stuff. I just think it kind of distracts from the craft of it a little bit personally um, in the same way food or anything else. Um, So so I'm hoping we get a little bit more back to that kind of, you know, true art and craft of it. But, yeah, it's just fun. It's fun to see what people come up with, and um, we'll see what's next. Megan, thanks for being here today. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And we'll look forward to seeing what the new uh, beer is coming out. 
Thanks for listening to the Startup Stories DSM podcast. Inspired by these startup stories, visit dsmpartnership.com slash business resources to find upcoming events, videos, and other free resources dedicated to helping startups and entrepreneurs accelerate success in DSM USA. That's dsmpartnership.com slash business resources. Thanks for listening.